And, you know, depending on who you were, you may or may not have had access to, you know, telephones uh, and just contact with the outside. In the the Louisiana prison, uh, it was very uncontrolled. It was extremely chaotic. You know, there was like uh, very minimal staff, staff that did work there didn't do a whole lot, you know, they because they didn't really have to. It was, it was pretty hard to get fired um, because they were in such need of, of people to work there. And yeah, I mean, you know, it's, it wasn't a political prison in the, in the way that the prison Iran was, um, it's just very different dynamics, I would say. Welcome back to the Prison Cells podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Robert Craig, the uh, Associate Director of Abolish Private Prisons. With us, as usual, is John Dacey, the Executive Director of Abolish Private Prisons. How are you doing, John? Great. Looking forward to this discussion. Yes, me too. And that's because with us today, we're very happy to have uh, Shane Bauer uh, with us. Uh, why don't you introduce yourself, Shane? Um. My name is Shane Bauer. I'm a uh, journalist, investigative journalist. Uh, I am author of the book American Prison, uh, which kind of chronicles my time undercover as a a prison guard in a prison run by the Corrections Corporation of America in Louisiana. The book also kind of uh, tells the history of for-profit prisons in America. Yeah, it's a... In some ways, I think you're sort of an ideal guest for our podcast because we're trying to do two things at the same time with this series. We're trying to, number one, talk about the incentives of private prisons and what that means for people and the history of private prisons and just let people know uh, as much as we can about their existence. Because I think private prisons are one of those things where when people learn about them, their their gut reaction is usually like, what is that? How is that still a thing? And the second thing is we're trying to highlight stories of moral courage. And I think for a lot of reasons, your individual story, plus the people that you met, I think highlights that. Um, so, you know, today we're going to the sort of theme of the podcast is return on incarceration, what it means when shareholders benefit while keeping people in prison. So, you know, we spend a lot of time thinking about and talking about and writing about the theory behind private prisons, the market forces and the economics but one thing that gets lost in all of that is what does that actually mean to people? And there's a lot of people that it affects. It affects the people that are in prison, the people that are working in prison, the communities. Um, so I think today telling those stories and talking about what it means to people when these prisons move into a community um, can really help people learn what the practical effects are. So can you, how did you come to the idea of prisons? I know you had a personal experience and anything you can share about that and how that changed your perspective on incarceration and what that might mean for people. Sure. So I kind of started uh, as a journalist uh, in the Middle East. Um, I, in 2009, was uh, based in Syria, was living in Syria and kind of reporting around the Middle East. Um, and in the summer of 2009, I took a trip uh, with some friends. It was not a reporting trip, uh, but we, we went to uh, Iraqi Kurdistan, northern part of Iraq. Um, that area at the time was, you know, it's an autonomous part of the country. Uh, wasn't kind of, you know, wrapped up in the, the conflict that the rest of Iraq was. Very stable part of the country. And uh, on our trip, we kind of went to this like local, I guess, tourist kind of site where local people would go camping, basically. Uh, there's like a waterfall. We went there and we went for a hike. Uh, we hiked up a mountain, um, not realizing that the top of the mountain was uh, actually the border between Iraq and Iran. Uh, when we got to the top of the mountain, we uh, saw a, a soldier which we assumed was an Iraqi Kurdish uh, soldier, but 
and he waved us over to him. It turned out that he was uh, Iranian. And so essentially in going to him, we crossed the border. We were detained, brought to Tehran and put in uh, Evin prison, which is the central prison of Iran. Uh, two of us spent uh, two years in the prison. Uh, one of us spent uh, a little over a year. Um, we spent time in solitary confinement. I personally spent four months in solitary confinement and then 22 months uh, basically sharing a cell uh, with my friend, but otherwise isolated from the rest of the world. Um, we got out in 2011 and, you know, I came back home. It was, you know, obviously a, a major relief to be out. We didn't know, had no idea when we would get out. You know, it was kind of a political back and forth between Iran and the United States. And after I got out, you know, kind of went through this period of readjustment. Uh, and there was at the time in California where I live, uh, a large hunger strike happening in the, in the prisons here. Um, it was protesting the use of, of long-term solitary confinement. So, you know, having been in solitary myself, having been on hunger strike in prison, I was kind of drawn to this, uh, you know, I was kind of following it. I wasn't really ready to get back into my work, but eventually I did. And the first project I took on was kind of investigating our use of, of solitary confinement in the United States. Um, and basically from there, you know, I just kind of got pulled deeper and deeper into the American prison system. Uh, you know, it, this, this is, as you know, the, the largest prison system in the world. We have more people in prison per capita than any country in the world. We use, you know, solitary confinement more. Um, and then, you know, there's this, this corner of the system that I hadn't really dealt with in the years that I was reporting on prisons, which was uh, private prisons. Um, part of the reason that I, I hadn't really kind of jumped into it is because it was really difficult to get access to these prisons. You know, like you said, um, I think, you know, there, when people hear the kind of basic outlines of, of what a private prison is that, you know, there's, uh, shares traded on the stock market for these companies that are holding people in prison. You know, I think most people are, are pretty revolted by that idea. Um, but as a journalist, it was hard to really get beyond that. You know, what is, I wanted to know what life was like inside of these prisons and, um, you know, these being private companies, there's, there's the, the prisons are able to kind of get around some of the public, even public records kind of laws that exist in a lot of states. And, you know, even public prisons are difficult to access. There's, there's so much control in prisons throughout the country that, even if you get into a prison as journalists, you're generally kind of just taking a little tour and that's about it. And you can't even do that usually in private prisons. So I had the idea of kind of applying, you know, for a job as a prison guard. Uh, I, it was kind of a whim, honestly. You know, I just had the idea. I, I checked out the website, filled out an application, and I didn't really think it was going to work, but I thought, why not, you know? Um, and I quickly start getting uh, you know, callbacks from prisons around the country that were owned by the Corrections Corporation of America. So I had, you know, a bunch of interviews. Um, you know, when I got re interview requests, I was not sure how I would deal with them. Basically, you know, I was working for Mother Jones at the time, Mother Jones Magazine. Um, you know, my editors and I had, had discussed how to go forward. And, you know, the kind of basic ground rule was that I would never lie. Um, you know, both kind of as a journalistic principle, also to protect us from potential lawsuits in the future. You know, they could say that I was fraudulent in my application. So, you know, when I'm facing the the possibility of, of doing these interviews, I'm thinking, okay, they're going to ask me, you know, questions about working in prisons and how am I going to get through this without lying? But it was, it turned out it was really easy because they didn't really ask me much of anything. You know, they just kind of, they didn't ask me why I wanted to work in a prison. They didn't ask me about my job history. It was basically like, it was almost that like they were kind of trying to sell the job to me because, you know, 
this the prison I ended up working in, they they paid nine dollars an hour. You know, it was hard even in this town in Louisiana that was really poor. It was hard for them to get people to work in a prison for nine bucks an hour. So they were almost kind of just uh, trying to recruit, you know, people. They were taking people right out of high school. They were uh, hiring former prisoners as guards. You know, they would they would really take anybody. You you listed on your application that you were an investigative journalist, right? Yeah, it, it, it's mm-hmm. really shocking in some ways that that wouldn't throw a red flag to anybody in the whole system. That's like, you know. Yeah, I mean, I can only guess that they didn't read the application. Right, right, right. And you, you talk about in the early days when you're sort of learning the people that you're working with and uh, going through the training together, you stood out in a lot of ways, right, from the, the people that were going through the training with you. Yeah, I mean, I wasn't from Louisiana and it's kind of like, okay, why why is this guy coming all the way from California for this $9 an hour job? You know, I think it didn't make sense to a lot of people. And, um, but, you know, I think it's a lot of people that worked there had backgrounds that they didn't necessarily wish to discuss. Um, there had been, you know, police officers who had been kicked out uh, of their departments. Uh, there was one guy who had worked in a juvenile detention center in Texas who had been kicked out because he uppercutted a minor. Um, you know, so it's this kind of culture of like, okay, many of us have past. We're not going to pry into, you know, each other's background. So people, you know, sometimes there were some questions like, why would you come here from California? And I would just kind of say something like, hey, you never know where life's going to take you. And Nobody would pry further. Right. Yeah. And I, I thought another interesting thing about the like employment side of it is it seemed like everybody through the whole process knew that the $9 an hour was not enough for what you were going through from like the, the, the woman at the gate who let you in the first time to the supervisors up to, you know, running into some of the higher ups. Everybody knows that nine dollars right. an hour is not enough to, to put yourself in a situation that can be potentially dangerous and stressful and and everything that goes along with that. Yeah, and it was a weird situation because the the wages were not set by the prison; they were set by a corporate office in Nashville. You know, so people at the prison, including the higher ups of the prison, you know, wanted to be able to offer more, um, and they knew that the fact that people were so underpaid was uh, essentially a security risk because like they told us in training, you know, you're going to, they, they would repeat this point over and over again, that you're going to go in there, you're going to be working in there and people are going to offer you, prisoners are going to offer you more money than, than you make, um, you know, uh, asking you to, to smuggle in, you know, drugs or cell phones or whatever it is. Um, and that happened all the time, you know, um, and the, the training head of training said, you know, you're going to go in there and you're going to be thinking, Hey, I need to pay, keep my lights on, pay my electricity bill. So you're going to be tempted. And they didn't really have much to, to offer to kind of, uh, discourage people from doing that other than just kind of telling us to, you know, to resist it, resist the temptation. At APP, we believe the only way to truly end for-profit prisons in the United States is to challenge the constitutionality of private for-profit prisons in the courts. And with your help and moral courage, we will succeed. Completely donor-funded, we ask for your support. Your tax-deductible contribution will provide vital funding for building the infrastructure necessary to win a fight of this scale. And every dollar will bring us one step closer to our goal of abolishing private prisons. Please join the fight today by visiting abolishprivateprisons.org and click the donate button at the top of the site. And of course, like, share, and subscribe to the Prison Cells podcast from wherever you listen. Now back to the discussion. As private security in in a private prison, did you have the same kind of uh, training and benefits, for example, a state pension that public correctional officers might have? No, we didn't. Um, we had four weeks of training, um, and many of those days 
I mean, so the baseline is that the prison itself is, is was extremely understaffed, and it's people who are working in the prison that are training us. So oftentimes there was nobody available to train us because there weren't enough people working in the prison. So we would just we had days where we just literally just sat there all day and did nothing. Um, and aside from the training, you know, the the benefits, the pay. I mean, everything was was lower than a, a public prison. Um, in Louisiana. And, you know, I think it's important to point out that the public prisons in Louisiana aren't, uh, great either. (laughs) You know, they're, um, they're all, uh, I mean, pretty abysmal places. Um, but the private version, the private prisons within that (laughs) were, uh, kind of more extreme in their, um, the conditions in the in the lack of pay and just kind of the lack of, of preparation for people working there. Right. I think what a thing that often comes up when in our work dealing with private prisons as the number one thing that we talk about is it can often sound like we're giving public prisons a pass, right? Because our focus is, right. is so narrow on private prisons. But I think the way that you framed it is is a way that we think about it as well, which is like the baseline is public prisons are miserable experiences overall, right? Like mm-hmm. nobody is having a, a, a reasonable time in those spaces. And you take a private prison and you amp up all of those negative aspects of it when you turn it over to a private right. party, right? Like at all of those yeah. places, you're giving a private corporation a chance to extract profit in some way. And that shows up in, in terrible places. Right. Before taking a deeper dive into the private prison experience, Shane, in your 2018 book, American Prison, you talk about some of the differences in your experiences as a prisoner in Iran, as opposed to working in a private prison in Louisiana. You must have been coming from a very difficult experience. And then I have to imagine it wasn't an easy decision to go back into a prison to work. Can you talk at all about what your experience was like before you took on this task? Um, In particular, the solitary and what kind of an effect it had on you? Yeah. um, I mean, I will say that the, the prison that I was in, in Iran, was different, very different than the prison I worked in Louisiana. Uh, or at least within the prison I was in, in Iran, I was in a, a ward that was basically uh, for political prisoners. It was mostly Iranians there, um, mostly kind of pro-democracy activists. <clears throat> but we were all isolated from each other. You know, there was no kind of yard time or there's not much interaction between people in their own cells. Um, very highly controlled. Um, people there were often physically tortured, um, and, you know, depending on who you were, you may or may not have had access to, you know, telephones, uh, and just contact with the outside. In the, the Louisiana prison, uh, it was, you know, very uncontrolled. It was extremely chaotic. You know, there was like, uh, very minimal staff, um, staff that did work there didn't do a whole lot, you know, they, because they didn't really have to, it was, it was pretty hard to get fired, um, because they were in such need of, of people to work there. Um, and yeah, I mean, you know, it's, it wasn't a political prison in the, in the way that the prison Iran was, um, it's just very different dynamics, I would say. But, you know, I think for me coming, a lot of people, I get this question a lot of, uh, like, you know, was it, was it, you think it was more difficult for you to kind of take that on? And I think in some ways, maybe it was less. I mean, because the kind of idea of prison for me was, you know, had been so demystified because I had spent two years in prison, even though it was in another country. Um, it didn't feel like as much of a, a, a leap to go inside. And I'd been writing about and reporting on American prisons for a while before that. 
you know, once I was inside, there were, I write about this in the book, there were, you know, um, kind of, I had a lot of inner conflicts. Um, having been a prisoner, you know, it was kind of like, it, I think, made it in some ways more difficult to be a guard. You know, I, I kind of thought of it when going going in as, you know, being a guard was, I was just kind of going to be like occupying the role um, and doing as little as possible just as a way to see what was going on. I wasn't really trying to, going in to write about what it's like to be a prison guard. But of course, once I got in there, I had to be. Um, and so I quickly found myself in these power dynamics with prisoners, you know, I'm locking them up. They're, you know, trying to get, a, get, get what they can, you know, trying to kind of push as much as possible against, uh, the kind of, um, norms of authority in the prison, which as a prisoner, I did, every prisoner does, you know, you, you're always trying to get as much leeway as possible. Um, so, you know, I had to crack down. I mean, everyone in prison, whether you're a prisoner or a guard, you you have to set some kind of line and and defend it. And otherwise, you know, you kind of get walked all over. So so I had to do that, which just made me become just another guard, you know, and um I would feel guilty about that. Like, you know, I remember a time that I found a, a cell phone. <clears throat> we were doing sweeps of public areas. I found a cell phone and you know, I was new to the job and I saw this phone and I was really conflicted. I kind of went through this process in my mind, like, do I take this phone? What would I have done to have a phone when I was in prison? You know, um, and there was a prisoner that saw me see the phone. He was watching and I, I knew that if I left it, I would probably uh, get points with the prisoners. It would make my life easier in some ways dealing with them. But at the same time, the prison management is so suspicious of the guards because of this low pay, because there's uh, so much temptation uh, to be, you know, basically doing illicit uh, sales in the prison that they're suspicious of everybody. And I knew that if I took this phone, um, I would essentially alleviate their suspicions of me, which as an undercover journalist, you know, I wanted to to, to get them kind of their eyes off of me as much as possible. So I took it, you know, I took the phone and that was one of the many kind of times that I was, would go home at the end of the day and, and just in a way feel like I was kind of betraying my former self, you know, my, I still thought of myself more as a prisoner than a guard. I taught for a couple of years before I went to law school and I don't want to trivialize the experience of being in a prison for anybody, but I do think that one similar thing is you have to make these boundaries, right? And everybody knows that these boundaries are existing. And by the time kids are, you know, seven or eight years old, they're also realizing that there's these artificial boundaries that everybody has to, you know, follow these rules. And they can sense when teachers are not right. capable of enforcing those rules, right? And I think we all have the experience of like going through school and going, you know, being with teachers that yeah. have good classroom management and, and teachers that don't. I, I, when I was reading that section in particular, it struck me that you're like, yeah. everybody is doing this role play, right? Where like, you're inhabiting the role of the guard, the, the people that are inside are inhabiting this role as a prisoner. And you have to do these things to exist in the system and what really jumped out at me is mm. when you left the system and you were able to talk to people not in your role as a prison guard, right? Whether that was other, you know, fellow employees or other people that you that were had been inside the prison, mm. the yeah. conversations were so much different, right? And and the tones seem, you know, it's, you're reading it, so I don't know for sure, yeah. but it seemed like the tone was so much different. And I wonder if you had thoughts about just like the difference in the role that you were inhabiting versus when you didn't have to play anymore and you were just yourselves. And totally different. I mean, I met a prisoner who I had been guarding who got out, you know, uh, after I left the prison. So I met him on the outside. Um, so it's different in many ways because I wasn't a guard over him. Um, the kind of veil had been lifted that even when I was a guard, I was, you know, had a different uh, motive. But he also wasn't a prisoner anymore, you know. So it just 
he was clearly going through a lot. You know, he had just gotten out after 20 years or something. And, you know, that's readjustment isn't easy for anybody. Um, so, you know, I'm hesitant to describe us as, as equals, even in that situation, but it was, you know, we we're much more on kind of an, uh, unequal footing. You know, he was talking to me, uh, you know, knowing that I was a journalist, he's kind of more like telling his story in a way that's different when he's talking to a guard, even though we had many conversations, you know, in the prison. Um, and I think, you know, even for the people I worked with, who I spoke to afterwards, uh, you know, the people I spoke to were obviously people who were willing to talk to me. Many people didn't want to talk to me after that. Um, so the people that I did speak to were, you know, what, generally people who kind of had grievances they wanted to air, you know, they wanted to talk about uh, the prison or the company or, you know, um, uh, kind of say what they want to say about, about the situation. Yeah. And did you, did you get the sense that it was like changing you even when you weren't in the prison anymore? Right. Like I know, from teaching again, just because that's the one time where I, I felt the strongest that I had to in, inhabit this other role. Even when you're not teaching in those situations, the role that you've inhabited so long starts to be a real part of you. And even when you're not there, you're acting that way or you catch yourself like snapping at somebody in a way that you you wouldn't feel like you would if you hadn't been inhabiting that role all day. Yeah, I mean, I think when I finished and left, I was actually surprised at how quickly that kind of uh, was undone. I mean, when I was working in the prison and I would come, you know, to my house in, in the town in Louisiana, um, it was always hard for me to really shake the, that role. And it was kind of creepy into my everyday life, my interactions with, with people. Um, but once I kind of removed myself from that situation, um, I did feel like it dissipated pretty quickly. Unlike when I was a prisoner, that that took much longer. Um, I mean, you know, it's it's very different. I was a guard voluntarily, and I could leave at any time. Um, but when I was a prisoner, it was you know a years long process really to to get rid of that uh, edginess. The I would also I would snap really easily at people. Um, you know, just was just dealing with PTSD um, in a way that I didn't as a, as a guard, I think. But, you know, I think if I had been there, somebody who was working there because they felt like they didn't have any other options and spent years there, I'm sure it would have been very different. One of the dynamics you describe in your book was the relationship between the people working for the private prison corporation, CCA, and the Department of Corrections. Mm. And it showed up in a couple of places. One passage from the book I recall is when the DOC people came in to such a violent and chaotic circumstance in the Wynn prison, yeah. the prisoners behaved very differently. Mm. The, it appeared to me that people were snapping more to attention following commands yeah. And you also described the personnel in the private prison as dreading the visit from the DOC people. Could you talk about that a bit? That kind of the dynamic. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the sense among prisoners was that Wynn was a joke. The private prison was kind of a joke. You know, they didn't really take it seriously. They didn't take the you know, the guards are it's like, we're basically mall cops, you know, and they knew that we knew that. Um, and, it, but yeah, as soon as the, there was a time when the, uh, the DOC stepped in and basically took over the prison for a while because it had become so violent and chaotic. Uh, and it was immediately different. I mean, the, the prisoners, many of whom had been in public prisons, you know, before being transferred to win, uh, just, just interacted with the, the DOC guards in a completely different way. They took them much more seriously. Um, you know, they didn't have weapons or anything that we didn't have. Uh, but it was just like, 
you could just see how differently they viewed kind of that system to the the, the private system. But then the uh, the staff was was worried because there was always a fear that uh, the prison was going to get shut down, basically, um, because it was just so unruly. So staff was worried about losing their jobs, you know. Um, and there was a little bit of a kind of resentment of, of you know, these outsiders coming in, kind of uh, telling them what to do and that kind of thing. But um, it was mainly kind of fear of losing their jobs. And I guess there was a bit of resentment about uh, the kind of DOC making people work more, basically. Yeah, I found that, you know, sort of an interesting dynamic that you described is like people doing as little as possible. And yeah, like you thought that was because the fear they had no fear of getting fired. Yeah, I mean, it's like people people would get fired if they got caught smuggling contraband, basically. But other than that, you know, there were people that worked there for years that just did the bare minimum. Um, yeah, because they, you know, they they just needed. They were so so desperate for staff, you know. So it wasn't as if they could let someone go and just have hire someone else right away. Um, so they would just kind of keep people on. And, you know, I think this is part of the, the for-profit dynamic. Uh, you know, the company's ultimate goal is to make money. Um, so there are certain boxes they need to check to run prison. You know, they need to have uh, so many guards in a unit, um, so many guards on staff, you know, at a, at, throughout the prison at a given time. But, you know, the state, if the state is not really kind of enforcing, you know, anything beyond that, what's the motive really, you know, for them? I mean, they're not going to make more money. Well, there were two things that stick out in your book. It didn't appear the state was enforcing much. Would you agree with that? Yeah. I mean, there was the period they kind of stepped in for a week, but then they left and everything went back to normal. And, you know, this, I think, is when there's a kind of false dichotomy sometimes between like private system and the state system, because the private system is a part of the state system. I mean, it's, it's overseen by the, the department of corrections, you know, the, the private prisons have to answer to the department of corrections, the department of corrections sets all the regulations. Um, so, you know, it's ultimately the fault of partially, at least the fault of the, just state corrections departments that these prisons are, are so terrible, you know, I mean, they're letting, they're letting that happen. You also describe in your book a pretty significant disparity between the amount of violence and death you observed compared to what the private corporation was reporting to the state right. corrections department. Could you talk about that? Yeah. So when I was working there, Whenever there was, a, you know, a serious violence incident, like a stabbing or something like that, I would uh, just note it. You know, I was kind of kept a log of dates and in instance incidents that happened. And when I left, I did a, a public records request with the Department of Corrections because um, you can you can get that data. It's, it's public record. Um, even you can't necessarily get the, the specifics of who's involved or whatever, but they they keep tallies of these things. So. You know, I requested it, um, the number of violent incidences the year that I was there. And the number that they gave me was lower for the entire year, was lower than the number that I had counted in the four months that I was there, you know, which means that they're not, not being reported, um, which kind of goes back to this, you know, just the issue, the, the difficulty of, of reporting on prisons because even if you can get the records, they don't mean anything if the people <laughs> they're filling out these forms are not doing it accurately, you know? So you kind of, I kind of had to be there to see what was actually going on day to day. There are many ways to get involved with the Prison Cells podcast, build your moral courage, and help us eradicate for-profit prisons in the U.S. 
Visit abolishprivateprisons.org today and build the momentum of abolishing private prisons by working with an organization to pass a resolution in support of the cause. Get to know the ins and outs of how private prisons operate and why. Outside of the site, you can write your congressperson and shed light on this awful practice. As always, please like, share, and subscribe to the Prison Cells Podcast from wherever you listen. Now back to the discussion. The availability of records through public records requests is, is strange because you can get access to things that get officially reported right. to the DO, whatever the agency is that's overseeing them, right? So yeah. you have these official reports because the DOC is a public agency and so they're subject to all of these things. But the, the, you can't get records that they that never get turned over, right? So any of the private proprietary stuff that goes on inside the prison, that stuff is completely yeah. unavailable. Yeah, and another example of that is um, in training that they showed us a video. It was a, a CCA video. Um, and in the video, it they claimed that the suicide rate in their prisons was lower than it was in uh, public prisons, which, you know, indication that conditions were, were better in the in their prisons um there was one person who i had guarded when i was working there that later in the year committed suicide and i ended up doing more reporting on him and, and writing about him uh in the book and um when i was doing these records requests one of the you know, along with violent incidents, I asked about suicides in the prison, how many suicides there had been. And they said zero. Um, and so what I found had happened is, you know, this, this man had, had hung himself in his cell um, and essentially went into a coma. Um, he weighed, at the time of his death, just over 70 pounds. Um, he was taken to a hospital where he you know, was in a coma for a few days before he died. And during the time that he was in the hospital, the prison officially discharged him. So he didn't technically die until he was, you know, he didn't technically die in the prison as, as a prisoner of Wynn. So they were able to kind of keep it off the books, essentially, by this kind of, you know, uh, bureaucratic maneuvering. Yeah. Yeah, it's one of the things that's it's really manipulates the statistics is the extent to which the private prisons can sort of pick the kinds of prisoners that are there, right? I mean, mm. we right. while, of course, the official final decision gets made by the state agency, they can structure the contracts in such a way to to get certain prisoners and then, and then use that data yeah. to make themselves appear both a better sort of public investment, but also a better client to the state. Exactly, yeah. Your book talks a bit about how the profit incentive in the private prison context very dramatically affects healthcare, mm. healthcare delivery. Um, could you talk about that a bit? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when I was in the prison, I saw, you know, a lot of pretty extreme uh, health situations. I met a, a guy who'd lost his legs to gangrene in the prison. Um, and I was able to act, to get his, his records later. Um, and cause he had, he had filed a lawsuit against the prison. Um, and basically what had happened is he, you know, was having a lot of pain, uh, in his legs, uh, would go to the, uh, the infirmary and they would, basically give him uh, Motrin and, and send him back. And, you know, he's constantly trying to, to go get medical help and it was trying to get sent to a, an outside doctor. Um, and so the contract that the, that CCA had with, with Louisiana uh, stipulated that if the prison, you know, went to send a prisoner to outside for outside medical attention, the prison would, would bear the, the company would bear that cost. Um, so, you know, the prison was basically making a per diem of 30 some dollars a day on a prisoner, you know, so taking them to a hospital, is, you know, essentially thousands of dollars. It's a huge, huge expense. So there was just such a huge incentive to avoid 
taking prisoners to outside medical care. Um, you know, so th this man lost his legs. You know, he by the time he he he. He was in such a bad state that he wasn't sleeping. And uh, the other prisoners in his tier uh, were threatening that if he wasn't, they, they thought he was uh, contagious, that he had something contagious. They were threatening that if he was not removed from the tier, they were going to beat him up. Uh, so it was, it was causing this kind of violent situation and the prison eventually took him out. And by the time he, he did get medical attention, it was too late. Um, and these kind of things, you know, I saw happening over, over and over again, heart failure, um, you know, just people that are begging for, for some kind of help that just couldn't get it. Hi, Shane. Uh, Tank Johnson here. Um, one of the questions that I have was, you know, I, I know kind of reporting, you, you know, you, you saw, you know, all that goes on, but can you speak to, I guess, the some of the compassion that you've seen and maybe if, if, if there's a conflict, if they're conflicted, you know, to be compassionate or, or what was your experience with, with the, with the guards and the, yeah. the inmates? Yeah, this was interesting. Um, and not something I expected, you know, um, we have these kind of ideas of like the role of the prisoner and the role of the guard. Obviously they're very opposed. Um, the reality in this prison is that, the guards are almost all of them. The vast majority of them are poor people from this town who have no other options. You know, they're not people who ever wanted to be prison guards. They're just doing it because they feel that they have to. Most of them were women. Um, many of those women were, were single moms who, you know, just needed healthcare um, for their, for their kids. And so what I would see is that, you know, you, people would come in, they go through training they start working and most of them want to be uh, reasonable people. You know, they, they want to be humane. They, they don't want to be kind of typical guards. And I would see people go through a, a similar conflict that I went through, which is, you know, you have prisoners kind of trying to, to win your loyalty. And then you have the, prison administration trying to win your loyalty and you're kind of pulled in both directions. And, uh, it's, it's very hard, you know, to kind of walk that line. So, um, a lot of people would quit, you know, it, it seemed that a lot of people just didn't want to kind of, they, they would feel sympathy towards the prisoners. Some of them would know prisoners, you know, um, they would say, People, when I was in training, would say, I remember one cadet said, like, you know, something like that it was almost chance of like that she wasn't on that side of the bars. You know, it's like everybody in that world, you know, people did drugs, whatever. People were breaking the law all the time. And uh, some of them ended up on the other side. Um, so there was a sense of sympathy there, but also, prisoners and guards would kind of bond a lot on just their disdain for the company. You know, uh, everybody hated the company, the guards and the prisoners, you know, they all felt exploited by the company. So um, there was this kind of sense of like, okay, we're on the same team and prisoners were really pushing that line, you know, like you, you're exploited by this company just like we are. So, you know, why are you essentially defending them? Um, so, you know, guards, I think, would often go one of two ways. One is that they would, uh, you know, crush this kind of inner conflict by just becoming the kind of more typical guard and kind of turning off that sympathy. Um, or they would embrace it, which either would would often kind of lead them to, you know, doing the kinds of things that the prison administration was trying to prevent, like, you know, bringing things in for the prisoners or they would just quit because they just couldn't, couldn't take it. One of the groups you described in your book that came from CCA was a special team you referred to as SORT, S-O-R-T. Mm -hmm. Who are those folks? So the SORT is a kind of, um, I guess, a kind of special operations type of team. Um, 
that belongs to, to CCA. And every prison had their own sort team. So the, they were regular guards who would, when needed, occupy this role where they would essentially, you know, if there was a, a violent incident, they would get suited up in armor, um, usually coming with tear gas or pepper spray um, and, you know, take out the violent prisoners. Uh, they were also brought in when there were riots. But the the assort teams could also be sent to other prisons. So there was a period when I was there that the company basically sent in a kind of national sort team to um, to win. Um, and you know these are these guys that I met were uh, typically kind of more brutal. You know their their job is to kind of whip bring people in line. So uh, they were quick to use tear gas and, and pepper spray and, and, and that kind of stuff. You know, they get paid a, a little bit more than the other prisoner uh, uh, guards um, and they, you know, just get deployed kind of around the country uh, de- depending on where the company needs them. I want to talk a little bit about like the structure of the corporation and some history stuff, but bef- was there anything else that you think sort of like stood out as I don't know, surprising or interesting about how, like when you're inside some of the ways that the profit motive might show up that we haven't covered so far. Mm. The company is basically cutting corners wherever they can. So, you know, you have like, uh, programming, for example, there's, there's just way less of, of, of kind of the rehabilitative type stuff that prisoners are supposed to offer, which are already abysmal in public prisons. But so for example, this, this guy who uh, committed suicide, he had been trying for for a long time to get into a program, you know, basically a support group, uh, and he couldn't because there just was, you know, there's there wasn't staff to to run these programs. So, you know, they um, the social worker. There was one social worker who was dealing with the entire prison, you know, um, and her caseload was so big that you know a prisoner would basically get half hour most a month with this person you know um so you know it's just like the the natural kind of extent of the profit motive was was to curb you know anything that could potentially actually help someone succeed and get back into the society um and it you know it went beyond that in, in making the prison more violent because there was, you know, people had nothing to do. People were often locked down because there wasn't enough staff to run the prison. So that they would just lock it down. So people weren't even going to the cafeteria sometimes or a yard. And it just creates this kind of cauldron, you know, where it's just so much tension and it just is constantly erupting and, you know, just trying to basically manage those eruptions. Right. Yeah. I think two of those things you said are interesting because they, we th- we read and write about the theory, right? And there's a couple academic reports, one out of, I think it was Wisconsin or Minnesota that showed that there's qualitatively fewer uh, rehabilitative and education programs in private facilities compared to public ones. And then uh, there was a study out of, I think it was Mississippi that showed that people in private facilities tended to spend 10% longer because of all of these incident reports that get written up. And so it's interesting to hear sort of the anecdotal experience of what that looks like mm. that matches the academic theoretical side of it. Yeah. Yeah. So let's go back a little bit or maybe up one level or something. And you, you did quite a bit of research about the the origins of CCA. And then uh, mm-hmm. afterwards, you, you did some sort of activism shareholder stuff. So what did you, what did you learn about the company itself and the structure? Well, the so I guess I'll start with the uh, one of the the co-founders of the company, um, Terrell Don Hutto. He he kind of was, I think, in some ways, a bridge between this kind of old system uh, of of for profit incarceration, which was closely tied to to slavery. You know, the after slavery is abolished. Um, many of the slave plantations in the South became prisons. Um, either they were, uh, well, at, at first they were just um, prisoners released to, to these fields 
you know, made to work on the fields in much the same way that the slaves had. Then later, those fields became actual prisons, and many of them are still prisons today. And Hutto had run um, some of these prisons in Texas and Arkansas. You know, he lived in a house on these big plantation farms and was kind of overseeing uh, prisoners, you know, picking cotton. Um, And he, you know, kind of as those uh there was there was a period of time kind of around the 70s that the system uh was not making so much money there you know that kind of plantation system had been for a period making money for you know kind of private uh you know lessees people are getting leases for prisoners and then and then it was making money for the state when the states were running them but then the prison population had skyrocketed to so fast to such a degree that the states were kind of scrambling to figure out essentially how to just warehouse people um, as they do today. Um, and at that time, Hutto and a couple other people kind of came up with this new idea, um, which was basically to, to build these prisons in this kind of warehouse style, um, but to uh, do it more cheaply than the state could do it and to to make money from it um so you know they started cca in the 80s um and you know we're basically just charging the state a fee per prisoner per day and trading their company on the the stock market um you know so they they became very successful and and grew really quickly what was the very first one where they like proved that it could work what did that look like Oh, it was, uh, if I remember, it was um, an immigrant detention center, actually. And it was a hotel that they had uh, essentially converted uh, into a prison. You know, they turned the hotel rooms into into prison cells and um, kind of on this like, you know, fly by night situation, they just threw it together really, quick, really quickly and uh, showed that it, it could work. And, you know. Yeah, it's, a, it's, it's like such a metaphor come to life when you describe that situation, right? Because we've talked a lot on on this whole series about this per diem way that it's set up and the state pays X dollars and then the, but, and and the the analogy that comes to mind immediately is a hotel, Mm -hmm. right? Like you pay $80 a night and you get all of these things for it. But to, but to learn that the actual first one of this company was literally like a distressed hotel that they took over and just were walking people down to like room 111. (laughs) And they talked about it that way. You know, they're like, it's this just one step over from the kind of hotel. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's so shocking that like, that that is the model that caught on, right? It's just like, because then you can see sort of the roots of it becoming this real estate empire right. that it that it later became. Yeah, and I think that, you know, looking at at how they make money and how the system grew points to the the origin of the problem, which is having so many prisoners. You know, the whole reason that this this company found this kind of niche is because there's just so many people to put in prison, too many for the the country to manage. Um, so, you know, I think if you talk about like how to kind of deal with this problem of private prisons, really the, the essence is, is depopulating prisons. Uh, Shane, uh, you know, I often hear that, you know, Louisiana incarcerates more people than, you know, any other state by a long shot. Mm -hmm. And do do you see like can can you see something like tangible that makes that number so much bigger and have so much more people imprisoned? Yeah, I mean it's a complicated question. Um, I mean, just anecdotally, being like living in Louisiana during that time, um, I was there's police everywhere. I mean, the state is just so hyper policed um, in a way that you know. Uh, I haven't really seen anywhere else. There's this kind of just like law enforcement uh, approach. There's like the local bar. There was a cop that was just standing behind the bar, you know? Um, and, you know, of course there's a uh, long history of racism, you know, the South in general, not just Louisiana has super high incarceration rates. Um, 
you know, I don't know why Louisiana in particular, though, you know, compared to Alabama or something like that. But also, you know, I think since I did this um, project, I think Louisiana has been trading off with uh, Oklahoma uh, as the, the most incarcerated state. Yeah, which is where I'm at now. And it's interesting. Also heavily privatized. Um, mm-hmm. And here, at least, a lot of what had happened is this like uh, mandatory drug sentencing uh, scheme, yeah. right? And so you have a lot of rural communities, like you're talking about, that got were that were affected by the opium epidemic in the same way that the rest of the country was. And when that gets paired with the the mandatory minimum sentencing and sort of aggressive prosecution practices, that just leads to the skyrocketing mm. population. Yeah, something that was interesting to me was that. In Louisiana, the prisons were not racially segregated. Um, You know, California is extremely racially segregated. And I would expect that Louisiana, you know, being in the deep south, uh, would have have been the same. But but it, it surprisingly wasn't. And, you know, I don't really know why exactly. I mean, the only way that I could explain it is that the kind of prison gangs, the racially based prison gangs, um, that are a big part of the the segregation came from California, um, and for whatever reason, they don't seem to have taken root in the South, at least in Louisiana. In your book, you talk about being threatened on a number of occasions, uh, fearing not just for your physical safety, but also that your cover might be blown. Could you uh, tell us a bit about? your exit from working at the wind prison and what happened after that? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I had a couple of close calls, um, as far as my cover while I was there, there was one time that I was, um, a, uh, the, the head of training, it was while I was in training told me that, uh, she, she had been sick. So she didn't come in one day and she told me that she, had tried to, she didn't have my number. Um, she tried to find me on Facebook and, uh, she was looking around for Sean Bauer and never found me. You know, my name is Shane. So luckily she she got it wrong. Um, because she would have found out it's like all they ever had to do is, was like search my name on the internet. Um, but after I'd been there for a while, you know, I, I felt pretty, pretty secure. Otherwise I was offered a promotion by the you know, prison administration, um, they kind of saw me as a, as a good guard. Um, and then, you know, four months in a colleague from mother Jones, James West, uh, came down to Louisiana to shoot some video. I, I was shooting hidden camera video in the prison every day with a little, uh, watch camera that, that shot kind of bad video. And James wanted to come and do some interviews with me on camera, get kind of just shots around the town, uh, things that we could use later. And, uh, he did some, was getting some nighttime shots of the prison from the outside. And, uh, he got arrested. Uh, the police came, it, you know, a prison guard, I think saw him called the police came and arrested him and he spent the night in jail. Um, and, Basically, you know, while he was in jail, they, he had a, a package in his car that was addressed to my address, um, had, I think, my name on it. So it seemed pretty clear that they had figured it out based on questions that he was being asked um, about his friend who worked in the prison. They never said my name, but, um, you know, it seemed that they'd figured it out. So as soon as he got out, he got out the next day, uh, I picked him up and we basically just took off, you know, we left as soon as possible and drove to Texas. Um, so I was kind of suddenly had left and, you know, the next day or two, a uh, local paper reported that I was a, was a journalist that I'd been working in the prison. So the, you know, the news came out, um, and got picked up by some, some national media. So the, the company knew that I was a journalist, which made the process of, you know, writing the initial article, uh, going through the legal stuff, much more stressful and difficult, you know, because, um, 
the prison knew that something was, the company knew that something was coming, coming. They were threatening the magazine with lawsuits and things like that. Uh, so it kind of, you know, extended the process of us preparing uh, to, to get that out. But it didn't, it didn't seem like the police cared that much, right? Like the, the public organizations, they sort of were like, who cares? <laughs> no, they didn't. Uh, I think that, in fact, they actually said that to, uh, to James when they were questioning him. Um, yeah, they, they didn't really look too highly on the prison itself. It seemed like the public police didn't really care that much about the fact that you were no. working for a private prison. Yeah, no, I got pulled over one time on the way to work uh for speeding and i tried i was in my uniform and i tried to kind of do this like hey you know we're we're both on the same side but they did not yeah, care it's just funny how there's this like <laughs> sure, works. The thin blue line does not extend to uh <laughs> to whatever i think they see him as like you as the mall cops or however you described you know so so what else were you able to do after the investigative stuff was over you had you know started to put together a story what else did you do um, through through the to tell the story further. Um, I mean, I did a lot of just kind of yeah, reading through like lawsuits and things like that uh, to against CCA to see how much of what I saw involved. seemed to apply to other prisons. Um, did a lot of historical research, and um, I also uh, you know I I always wanted to interview the leadership. Of the company, wanna, and they had no, denied my request. Um, and make sure so I realized that his the way that I could kind of get face to face with them was at a shareholder meeting. Um, so I bought one share in the company, you know, which allowed me to to attend the annual shareholder meeting um, in Nashville. So I went there, and uh, you know, it was bizarre. I'd already been working mm-hmm. on the project for probably two, three years at that point, I had written the article, I was working on the book. Um, and there I was in the same room with all these people who, you know, I knew a lot about and, um, uh, they knew who I was. Um, and you know, they were, were very, uh, careful to, to avoid interaction with me as much as possible. Um, the shareholder meeting was, it was interesting because in the time so my article came out um, shortly after that. The Obama administration had announced that they were going to discontinue their contracts for federal private prisons, which may- caused the the value of the uh, shares of CCA to really tank. Um, it's like dropped off a cliff. Uh, then Donald Trump was elected and the day that he won the election their stock price skyrocketed more than any company in the stock market so all of this had happened before i went to the shareholder meeting and it all had happened within the year that this meeting was was covering um but nothing you know nothing was was mentioned it was just kind of this you know glowing um you know, report on, on their prisons. They showed some kind of videos about how great the rehabilitation was. And, you know, uh, there was really nothing of substance there. It was just kind of them all patting themselves in the back. Um, the only shareholders that were there were me and a couple of, of activist shareholders. Um, so we, the shareholders get to ask, everyone gets asked a question, at least one question. So I was able to ask some questions. Um, to them, um, you know, asked them. Oh, actually, uh, one of the activist shareholders asked about the suicide that I had written about um, and the kind of healthcare they provided. Uh, I asked about, you know, the the justification for for the wages they paid and, and some other things. And you know, they they just kind of gave some corporate speak and, and moved on. And as soon as the meeting was over, they all kind of rushed out and no chance to really talk to them yeah I, I, from our experience looking at the companies i mean they seem to be good at two things and that's and neither of them is running a prison one is real estate and two is their pr machine is incredible i mean they produce yeah. these videos and you know they have this uh, trade group the day one alliance that 
it's just basically prop- corporate propaganda about all of the good stuff they're doing. Yeah. And one thing that I think is that shows how much they care about that stuff is that they changed their name from the Corrections Corporations of America to Core Civic right. to hide the kind of stuff that they're doing. Yeah, I mean, the main takeaway from attending that meeting was that the people running the company just seem very, very disconnected from the, the prisons themselves. You describe the board of directors, I think, in your book. It's consisting mostly of older white men. Um, and I couldn't help but notice mm-hmm. the parallel. In your book, every other chapter, you were talking about the history of slavery, our penitentiary system in this country, and who profits and who suffers. Yeah, I mean, I think it's important to, to remember that, you know, our prison system is is an out, outgrowth of the slavery system. And that's not just kind of a historical tidbit. I mean, it's, it's still playing out today, you know? Um, I mean, we had, you know, white people profiting from the bodies of, of black people during slavery. And when that ended, there was kind of a new, a new way that was invented to do that, you know, through convict leasing and the, the methods have, have morphed and changed with the times. Um, but that, that drive is still there, you know, and I think private prisons, um, I mean, they they are an outgrowth of that, you know, they did come out of that, that, that legacy. Um, and it's, you know, it's still alive. <laughs>